The Foundation hosts podcasts to encourage a lively exchange of ideas related to our mission. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the Foundation's positions, strategies, or opinions. Welcome to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pioneering Ideas podcast. For people interested in exploring cutting-edge ideas and emerging trends that can help build a national culture of health. I'm your host, Lori Melliker, a Senior Program Officer at the Foundation. We have an exciting episode for you. An expert in conspiracy theory gets us thinking about what really drives people's beliefs and their behavior when it comes to health. Harvard economist Sindel Malinathan, author of Scarcity, Why Having Too Little Means So Much, talks about getting more people to recognize the ripple effects of sleep on our mental and physical well-being. We sit down with microbiome scientist Jessica Green to explore just how smart our smartphones can be. And here's a hint. They can help us understand how microbes move through our environment. And our own Alonzo Plow, Vice President of Research, Evaluation, and Learning, and a jazz vocalist, riffs on the challenges of measuring culture change. It's an exciting lineup of pioneering thinkers talking with us about their work and how it can help build a national culture of health. Together, they represent one of the things I love the most about my job, the ability to continually discover, explore, and learn. And I hope listening to this episode helps you feel that same sense of curiosity and excitement about the potential that lies ahead. Let's start with a conversation between our Assistant Vice President of Research, Evaluation, and Learning, Brian Quinn, and Eric Oliver, a professor of political science at the University of Chicago and an alumnus of the Foundation's Scholars in Health Policy Research Program. This interview was recorded this past spring, right after Eric published research on Americans' beliefs in medical conspiracy theories. Now, it's easy for some to joke about conspiracy theories, but there's no denying these theories have powerful effects on many people's beliefs and their behaviors. And there's no reason to think that they don't have important implications in the area of health as well. In order to achieve a culture of health, we need to better understand people's attitudes and behaviors around health. What drives someone to eat better? What drives them to access and utilize the healthcare system in efficient ways? We know that a lot of our existing models around attitudes and behaviors don't fully explain what's driving people. So we funded Eric's research to see what we might learn. Here's Brian and Eric. Thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to chat, Eric. The first paper coming out of your RWJF-funded study on medical conspiracy theory beliefs uh, in the U.S. was just published online in uh, in JAMA Internal Medicine. So uh, in our conversation today, I'm, I'm hoping to get a little bit beyond some of the provocative headlines that we're seeing in the media about the study and to, to dig a little deeper into what the results really mean. So uh, maybe to get us started, Eric, you could give us a, a brief overview of the, the study and the, and the key findings. Sure. Uh, we have been doing some work on political conspiracy theories, which found that around half of Americans embraced some kind of political conspiracy theory. And we had come across in doing this research a lot of uh, references to medical conspiracy theories and health conspiracy theories. And so what we did is we, we went out and we surveyed what were some common, what we would call medical conspiracy narratives uh, that people are encountering. And we picked six of them. And uh, they range from things like the Food and Drug Administration is deliberately preventing the public from getting natural cures for cancer because of pressure from drug companies. 
to things like public water fluoridation is really just a secret way for chemical companies to dump the dangerous byproducts of phosphate mines into the environment. And we, we use an online survey, which has a very high level of reliability, and we can weight it uh, to make sure that we're getting a representative sample of the population. Actually, in this case, we had like 1,300 respondents for our survey. And we asked the respondents if they had heard these conspiracy theories before, and we gave them a five-point scale of agreeing and disagreeing. And what we found was that about half the sample expressed agreement with at least one of the conspiracy narratives that we set forth. And, and did you find anything particularly surprising or, or troubling or, or even heartening in a way? Well, I think when we when we look at just the basic numbers, we weren't surprised. Uh, if anything, you know, we we had confidence because they were so consistent with our research on political conspiracy theories. Um, now, part of our whole purpose for this is trying to understand how ordinary citizens make sense of the world around them, whether it comes to politics or whether it comes to health. And one of the things that we're particularly interested in is how and why people reject what might be common explanations for politics, you know, explanations that come from, say, traditional ideologies or, in this case, you know, information about health and medicine that may come from traditional uh, sources such as doctors or the American Medical Association or the government, for that matter. And, you know, if people are not believing these sources, well, where are they getting their information? What might be organizing their way of understanding the world? And in our research, we're trying to be very careful about not passing judgment on the narratives themselves. We're being decidedly agnostic about the claims in the narratives. But what we're trying to understand is how do these narratives operate as a form of public opinion? And when people are encountering these narratives, are they embracing them and why they are embracing them? I'd be curious whether there are segments of the population that are more, more attuned to these conspiracies and whether these conspiracies are driving certain segments of the population to, to behave differently, um, whether that's uh, by age group or by education level. What, what patterns do you see playing out there? Sure. If, in terms of the demographics, we find a very strong correlation with education. Uh, the more educated our respondents are, the less likely they are to subscribe to these conspiracy narratives. We also sort of see these uh, conspiracy narratives are more common uh, amongst people who are marginalized in one way or another from American society. Minorities oftentimes have higher levels of, uh, of embracing conspiracy narratives. People who have less income are, are more likely to embrace these conspiracy narratives. They also correspond a lot with a sort of set of other beliefs that we might describe as a tendency towards magical thinking, which is the belief in unseen intentional forces. And so we find that people, for example, who believe in ESP and horoscopes, who think that politics is a struggle between good and evil, who think that we're living in end times as foretold by biblical prophecy, that people who embrace these kinds of narratives also are much more likely to embrace these medical conspiracy uh, theories. And I think what's important to denote here is that that is very different from saying that the people who embrace these conspiracy theories are paranoid. One of the things that we are, are drawing from this research is this notion that these conspiracy narratives are not necessarily pathological. And the way to think about it is imagine you're in a, a dark house at night and you hear a noise. You know, more likely than not, you might think, oh, there's an intruder in the house or, you know, it's the boogeyman or something like that. And, you know, I think that kind of tendency to attribute some unknown uh, stimulus to that there's some sort of malevolent unseen force, you know, we could think probably it goes back very far in our evolutionary lineage. 
And when we live in an uncertain world where we might not necessarily have a lot of information and we encounter a narrative which you know, attributes the source of, of a particular phenomenon to some unseen intentional source. That may be very psychologically compelling uh, for a lot of people. And we think, you know, our data show that to a certain extent. The other thing that was interesting for us is people basically who got most of their health information, they said, from a doctor or a nurse or uh, from uh, news magazines, that they tended to be much less likely to embrace these conspiracy narratives. Where people are more likely to embrace these conspiracy narratives if they get most of their information from family and friends, uh, from alternative sources. Um, and so we think it's the kind of the combination of where one sits in terms of a socioeconomic status, a psychological proclivity in the absence of any other, nation, uh, other information to embrace this narrative, and then uh, in some ways a, you know, a, a willing insulation from kind of what might be kind of a mainstream discourse about health uh, and well-being in the United States. You know, I think it's it's worth mentioning again. You and and your your colleagues who who worked on the study approached these conspiracy theory narratives agnostically, uh, w- without uh, making a judgment about whether they were right or wrong. And and indeed, historically, uh, there have been many conspiracy theories that have proven correct. So, so I, you know, I'm curious about what you what what you think these these findings mean. I, this is very interesting and makes for a, a compelling discussion, but it it has practical implications. And and I'm I'm curious about how, who you think would be most interested in the findings. Well, I think there are a variety of different audiences for this. Health practitioners should be aware that a lot of people have a lot of mistrust of traditional medicine today. Uh, they have a lot of mistrust of drug companies. And I think in some ways what these conspiracy narratives point to is that deep level of mistrust. When patients are expressing these concerns, this may be uh, an important source of information for a health practitioner. This may be a person who is otherwise very normal, but may be very suspicious of a uh, a kind of uh, prescription or a treatment regimen that involves traditional medicine. People who embrace these conspiracy theories are not less concerned about their health. And you, know, you may think that the FDA is withholding natural cures for cancer, but that doesn't mean that you're less interested in your own well-being. And what we see, though, is that these pe- uh, people who are embracing these narratives are much more likely to try uh, natural cures. Uh, they're much more likely to try herbal remedies. They say they prioritize organic food. They are uh, more likely to take vitamins. But they are less likely to to engage in a lot of behaviors that uh, we would think as traditional medicine. They're less likely to use sunscreens. They're less likely to get annual physicals. Uh, they're less likely to get flu shots. And so what we see is sort of corresponding with uh, these behaviors are a, a kind of a constellation of all sort of alternative health behaviors that in a lot of ways may be conflicting with uh, kind of the conventional wisdom and advice that's coming down from organizations like the AMA. Medicine involves a lot of uncertainty, as with all science, and there are a lot of different discourses and arguments and ideas that float around about these various diseases. And some of these arguments may have a greater appeal to people, not because of their scientific merit or even their rationality, but because they may just seem more psychologically compelling. And I think what we would like to do with this research is try to get a larger discussion about how how are ordinary citizens trying to make sense of their health, given that we we get so much conflicting information about what is good for us. How are people formulating their own ideas about about their health and about health practices? 
The Onion had a piece recently uh, with a bit of, bit of satire poking fun at, at the study with a quote from a uh, fake uh, man on the street saying, how are we supposed to know what to believe when we're presented with decades of, of peer-reviewed research supporting the consensus of the scientific community? And then my aunt posts the exact opposite thing on Facebook. And I, I think, while it's certainly funny, uh, there's a bit of truth there, and it underscores an important factor in some of this research, which is how information gets transmitted and shared can really drive a lot of our, of our understanding around health and, and a lot of our attitudes and behaviors. So I guess my question is, uh, to what extent do, do uh, social networks and, and increased use in social media facilitate the spread of some of these ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. When I first got interested in conspiracy theories, it was I was it was in the 1990s, and I was in graduate school, and I was on a bus, and some guy came up to me, and he handed me a little piece of paper with his conspiracy theory written out that he had photocopied, and he was sort of just handing out to what he thought I guess were sympathetic uh, souls. Uh, and you know, today that guy would have a website, and you know, would be able to reach thousands and thousands of people. And there are just so many more sources of information that. You're going to see a much greater pluralism in people's understandings about uh, issues uh, across the board. More than that, is when people put forth these conspiracy narratives, I mean, they can be terrifically implausible, but nobody is there to sort of check them. And without that, if they do have a sort of a kernel of truth to them, they may they may take off and go viral and get spread around, and then by that point, become an accepted wisdom uh, amongst a portion of the population. And once some of these ideas take hold, how sticky are they? Uh, you know, to, to what extent are, are they resilient in the face of, of additional information? You know, how do those dynamics play out? The stickiness of the conspiracy narrative really depends upon a couple of things. Someone's ideology. So does it coincide with an ideological prior? So if I am ideologically very suspicious of the Food and Drug Administration or drug companies or even the government, then a conspiracy narrative, you know, articulates that mistrust in some ways and it may may be very attractive to me. Does this research point to any um, new ideas about how we might best communicate the links between conspiracy theory thinking and uh, health behaviors? Um, A lot of it really depends upon what kind of communities people are living in. People may have a lot of, you know, suspicions about, uh, say, traditional medicines, you know, and they may really want natural cures for various diseases, but you give them a diagnosis of cancer at something, and they may, at that point, give me whatever medicine works, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, there's, most people will probably be, at some level, pretty pragmatic, depending on the health condition that they face. So when it comes to thinking about how we might uh, try to address certain health problems and how cons- like these conspiracy narratives may be conflicting with that, I think we need to really begin to look at sort of what are the particular costs and benefits for people of adopting that health behavior. And if we can show people that there are actually significant risks and costs my suspicion is that, that their behavior is like, is more likely to change. So switching gears a bit, at the beginning I mentioned the, the Foundation's new work, our, our new strategy to try to create a culture of health in America. Um, I'm curious about how you think uh, uh, the findings from this study and some of your previous work can inform some of our thinking about how we really uh, begin to reshape how uh, Americans and the communities that they live in are thinking about health and healthy choices. Well, I think when we, we you talk about a culture of health, 
I think the probably my immediate response would be to say America has cultures of health, uh, and these are cultures that don't necessarily uh, always coincide with each other, and that people choose or exist in one or sometimes simul- many of these cultures uh, simultaneously. It's important for us to be sensitive to the fact that you know not everyone thinks about health the way I do or the way that you do, and that you know some pe- some people approach health from the perspective of a, say a, a strong religious tradition. They believe in the power, for example, of prayer uh, as an efficacious way to treat disease. Other people understand health from a more organic or holistic tradition. Some people. Uh, understand health as an evidence-based practice, strictly from the mantle of science. We have to understand that you know each of these are different kinds of cultures, uh, and they you know engage in health practices in, in different ways and through different types of assumptions. We can't really have a one-size-fits-all health message that we try to send out. And how we you know approach people and try to improve uh, cultures of health has to be in some way sensitive to an indigenous belief system that's already there. Um, and that's not going to be uniform across the country by any stretch of the imagination. So a final question for you, Eric. What's next? Where, where does this uh, research go from here? What new research questions has this study sparked in your mind? Well, I think for my collaborator, Tom Wood, uh, who is an, uh, soon going to be a political scientist at Ohio State, you know, what we realize is that there's an idea of magic in the air. There's an idea of unseen forces. Uh, and there are narratives and beliefs that, that fuel these ideas. And we can't necessarily expect to have a uniform conversation about anything in the public sphere, whether it be politics, whether it be the environment, whether it be health and medicine, without having a, a better appreciation of the variety of perspectives that people are bringing on and the perspectives that are not simply just a liberal or conservative perspective or a Democratic or Republican perspective or even like a, a white, black, or Latino perspective. Trying to understand how we communicate across belief systems uh, is really uh, the, the part of, of, of this research that we're, we're I think, getting more, most interested in. And I think it really has a lot of relevance when you start talking about how do you communicate information about health uh, and wellness and medicine, particularly in an era where there's just so many sources of information. Wonderful. Well, um, you know, Eric, this conversation reminds me about why I was so interested in this project in the first place, and uh, congratulations on on the, uh, the the progress you've made. It's a fascinating area and one with uh, important implications. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Brian. When we talk here at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation about working together to build a national culture of health, where getting healthy and staying healthy are guiding social values for all, we're talking about a culture of health that embraces diverse belief systems and speaks to all people. So how do we know if, as a nation, we're succeeding at working together to create a national culture of health? My colleague Jody Struve recently sat down with our new Vice President for Research, Evaluation, and Learning and Chief Science Officer Alonzo Plough to talk about his leadership in this area. So Alonzo, since you've joined the Foundation in January, your primary focus has been on developing the measures and metrics for our culture of health strategy. How do you measure culture change? 
culture is about the deepest thing one can change in society. It's the bedrock. It's very deep. It's a set of norms and ways of thinking that are actually powerful because you often don't think about them. You just act on them. So we are thinking about what are measures, way of capturing what's important in a culture of health that can resonate at levels from policymakers to just interested residents uh, at a neighborhood level. How do we get a reasonable number of measures, 30 or 40 in what might be a national set of measures, that really motivate uh, diverse uh, people in the population? That's quite a tall order. How do you begin? So let me just uh, share with you the ways that we're thinking about this now. And we've been working with four, call them buckets, we sometimes formally call them dimensions. So one of those, uh, we are all in this together, uh, and the nation needs to value health more. We've put that in a, a bucket which we call valuing health and social cohesion. So, so what does that mean? We recognize that for us to have a culture of health, we need to think about health and not just the absence of illness. Most people think about health when they are not healthy. Uh, most people think about health in solely the interface uh, with their illness care. So we, part of this is a culture of health. People are thinking um, at a neighborhood level, at a family level, about what it means to be healthy. Uh, so part of what we're trying to do are measure and look at those things that would make people think more about and value health. And as neighborhood residents uh, vote for ordinances and policies that would improve their health, ask questions about uh, their neighborhood's health when they're thinking about renting or buying a home, that health is top of mind. Second part of that one, the social cohesion relating to the we're all in this together, we know that there's just lots of literature that if you have stronger social networks, neighbors trusting neighbors, communities working in a trusted way with government, um, if you break down some of those barriers and emphasize the fact that uh, community resilience, uh, community solidarity is a very important part of promoting health, that's another part of what we're trying to measure in, in that dimension. Social cohesion and valuing health, uh, these are hard things to measure, and some of those things might be increasing volunteerism in neighborhoods. Uh, some of that might be the presence of, uh, of neighborhood-based uh, health coalitions that are building resilience in communities. So we're looking at some unusual and new measures. Very interesting. So what else will you seek to measure? The second area that we talk about and are trying to measure and understand is uh, we're calling cross-sectional partnerships uh, to promote health. Uh, school health partnerships, where schools work with community-based health centers uh, to improve vaccination rates, when school nurses also reach out to families and connect with other parts of the healthcare system, when a large corporation decides that uh, the well-being of the community in which it resides is an important part of their own corporate well-being and invest in open space or builds an open access health club or helps to promote uh, building um, a green grocer in the neighborhood. Those are ex examples of intersectoral partnerships. So we think that the promotion and increase of those kind of activities uh, are really going to be the things that uh, help drive a culture of health.
We'll also have measures that look at the affordability of health care. We will have measures that uh, help to track, uh, hopefully, the narrowing of inequality in access to health care. We'll have some measures that hopefully track the uh, uh, narrowing of housing risks uh, in communities, or another way to put that, increasing equity in affordable and safe housing. We're drawing on things that are beginning to be well-known, like the county health rankings, but we'll also be drawing on some very uh, new measures, some using big data sources uh, that allow us to uh, understand the, the culture of health. So it's really a balancing act between making smart use of metrics that already exist and coming up with new innovative ones. Yeah, there have been lots of ways of measuring health, uh, healthy people, 2020, many different ways that we've tried to measure this. And they're, they're all important. And the standard illness and death measurements, mortality and morbidity, these are important measures. But we're trying to come up with measures that really address uh, uh, things that really have to change. Uh, and maybe measures that uh, indicate that as a nation, we're going to have to have some disruptive models to move the status quo if we're going to get to a culture of health. Uh, so we are trying to develop indicators that show um, show innovations. So we're trying to find measures that are really indicators of cutting-edge places where we need to go to broaden how we improve health uh, and measures that uh, are sentinel to those kinds of innovations and that can catalyze and engage populations to um, do the kind of activities that would move those measures in a positive direction. Speaking of innovation, I know you're also a jazz musician. I'm curious, how does that connect with your work at the foundation? The way you uh, operate in jazz is that you understand that there are multiple leaders, many ways uh, to get through a particular set and song. It is very interdependent. It is um, very interactive with the audience as well as with uh, the folks uh, on the stage. And I actually draw on uh, some of the things that make for great improv uh, and a wonderful shared experience in the jazz milieu as uh, something uh, that uh, it should be informing what we're trying to do with uh, a culture of health. What we learn in improvisation you know, the risk-taking, the, the, the sensibility to context. I mean, these are really important lessons that are generalizable. Thank you so much, Alonzo. This has been great. Stay tuned for more in future episodes on the subject of measuring a culture of health. What Alonzo shared today is just the tip of the iceberg. building a culture of health also means bringing together disparate ideas, connecting the dots, and innovating at the intersection between two fields of study. That's the case with our next guest, Jessica Green, a pioneering scientist whose work straddles the forefront of microbiology and environmental design, exploring how we can combine microbiomes with smart design to create a healthier world. If you aren't familiar with the term microbiome, it's the invisible collection of microbes bacteria, viruses, fungi, and archaea that live on, in, and all around us. We're learning more and more about the microbes we carry with us and how they relate to our health. We know that some of the microbes in our bodies help ward off pathogens and infections. Some research has even shown that the microbes in our gut may be linked to the way that we feel and the way that we think. 
My colleague Deborah Bay recently spoke with Jessica by phone about the possibilities for a deeper understanding of microbiomes to contribute to a culture of health, starting with our phones. You recently published a paper in PeerJ that shows that our cell phones actually reflect our personal microbiome. What inspired you to do this project? Microbiome science is in an early enough stage where there's great enthusiasm about how knowledge in this field can help improve human health and well-being. And we're also in a state of uncertainty where we don't know whether it's going to play as great of a role as everyone thinks that it will or could. My long-term vision is to really understand the nature of picking up microbes from our surrounding environment and how this type of exposure links to our health and well-being. Not just in thinking about microbes as germs or contaminants, but also thinking about beneficial microbes. So is it possible to use our um, personal effects, like our cell phones, to understand when and where we're picking up microbes that are good for human health and well-being? And is it possible to design or engineer the built environment in such a way that it can foster wellness? Can you help us understand some of the findings? Sure. What we discovered is that not only is your phone an ecosystem like any ecosystem, but we also found that there was about an 80% overlap in the text of it were common to fingers and phones. I love this question that you ask about how we can design the indoor environment to promote beneficial microbes and inhibit harmful ones and this idea of bio-informed design. I think it's a really compelling vision. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we're moving in this direction and signs that you're seeing progress. So we've made a lot of progress in this area in the last five years, in part because of the vision of Paula Olsuski at the Alpha P. Sloan Foundation, do the choices that engineers and designers and facilities managers make about the indoor environment, does that even have an effect on the types and distributions of microbes indoors? And the resounding response is yes. So the next step is really to link this innovative work that's relating design to indoor ecology, indoor microbial ecology, to help. And I think that there are a lot of ways to approach that grand challenge. So what's next for you, Jessica? Um, What's next for me? The next step specific to this paper, this Pure J paper, is having a greater understanding of the value of a mobile phone as a biosensor. I'm interested to know, is it a general principle or is it universal across thousands of people that the mobile phones reflect the microbes that we carry on our hands, for example? And I could imagine using our personal effects as a type of sensor in this way in healthcare settings where if people wanted to understand the source and spread of different groups of uh, microbes, you could do that. And I could also imagine an application at much larger scale, so on the ground, urban scale biosensing, combined with um, remote sensing and public health data 
I think you could use that to understand how different urban planning decisions or, for example, how gradients of green space that people have in different neighborhoods relate to um, the health of people living in those neighborhoods. I'm thinking a lot about it because I have a graduate student that is really interested. She's in the landscape architecture department thinking about social justice and um, inequity in terms of particularly surrounding green space. And she's starting to study the urban microbiome and what people are being exposed to is different if you're in a very concrete aid versus the green environment. Jessica's ideas about how environmental design may be able to play a role in minimizing health disparities are fascinating. I can imagine people one day choosing which daycare center to send their child to based on the health of its microbiome, or even communities working together to create landscapes that are known to promote health. Our health is hugely affected by the places we live, work, and play, and sleep, or don't sleep as the case may be. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, insufficient sleep is now a public health epidemic even for those who don't have a clinical diagnosis. I've been really curious to explore more about the factors impacting our sleep and interventions that might be able to help. As part of this exploration, I've talked often about the issue with Harvard economist Sindel Malinathan, who shares my fascination with the topic. Here's a recording of one of our recent conversations. So you and I have talked a lot about the challenge of sleep. I wonder, and you've written about this as well, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you think our nation's lack of sleep is affecting so many aspects of our life. Yeah, I think that it's funny because sleep is such a unique self-control problem. Like, if I eat a donut, I get benefits today, but the costs are small and years from now. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe months from now if I put on some weight and I don't look good. But sleep, the benefits are like now. You know, I stay awake a little later. But the costs are literally in 12 hours. And there's something disjointed about it because we all kind of know how extreme the costs are and sort of the cognitive effects of it are so strong. You're just less productive. You're less friendly. You're less everything. And so it's interesting about how can there be this self-control problem where it's so acute? I think the reason is, unlike a donut where you eat the donut or don't, sleep always has this little bit of a, well, I'll just stay up five more minutes. And this happened to me a lot. Like I, I'm like 10, 15, I'm like, I should go to bed. It's a little early, so I'll just stay up a little later, and then before I know it, it's 12. And that creeping aspect of it, I think, is especially problematic. I think the other thing that's happened in the last whatever, 20, 30 years is, the kind of things we do before we go to bed have changed. Like, I remember watching TV before going to bed, and there's something so horrific about television. Like, it's just, because it's not, it's engaging in a minor way, but it doesn't tax you. Whereas surfing the web is not so horrific. It, like, because it keeps pinging you back and forth, and you keep doing stuff. And so I do think that there's something about the texture of the things we do late at night that probably had a pretty big effect. You know, uh, physicians often use a strategy of telling someone that if they stop smoking today, it, it will be okay. They, they will, there will be benefits from that, so showing that there's a marginal benefit mm. to try to make 
I guess put the deadline sooner. I wonder if the study that needs to be done is to show the marginal benefits of getting not eight hours yes. of sleep, but getting an extra five minutes, You're an extra 30 minutes. Totally right. I think that we had no extreme sleep deprivation because that's what psychologists are interested in. And we sort of interpolate a little bit, and there's some studies that try to interpolate, but we really need to know what's the difference between seven hours and six and a half hours. Like That would be great because that is the margin most people are thinking they're operating on. Right. I don't think the sleep is important bandwagon has enough people on it. What I mean by that is, doesn't have enough thought leaders, policymakers, foundations, companies. I just think you talk about sleep, it's starting to be thought of as important, but it's not really thought of as like a priority. It's nowhere near obesity, whereas arguably it's much more important than obesity. And so I would have thought one of the first interventions I would want is not on people, but how do you move the marketplace of ideas? so that a lot more people are saying, we must do something about sleep. Maybe because we're both interested, it feels like you can see it in places. And it is true, it's starting to simmer a little bit, but it really feels like you need to kind of get it boiling, like as happened with obesity in the 80s and 90s. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about that and talk about maybe how we could get employers to care about yeah. this. I mean, I think one of the things that is really needed is just a mountain of evidence on the bottom line case. So employers started paying attention to depression just because they said, oh, look, missed work days, blah, blah. And that was, you know, that, that really moved them. Now, sleep affects all employees. I don't think most employers kind of recognize the extent to which it affects them. Sleep has benefits next week, tomorrow. The other thing that's needed is employers need to, they need to be able to say, oh, okay, here's a turnkey solution. Got it. And so I think simultaneously, creating the evidence base that you've got to do something about it, then fostering innovation on packages employers can buy, whatever it might be, that then do something about it would be super interesting. Right. I would even love to even create, here would be an interesting thing, simple test, a one-minute video that you have employees watch quietly, or one-minute task that quickly assesses how sleepy they are. Well, if you gave that to their employees and you realize, wow, 40% of your employees are like the equivalent of three hours of sleep. There's a problem. I think, I think you need more of that to kind of wake people up. Right. Well, uh, that's not a pun, sorry. It's great to talk to you as always. And my pleasure, thanks. The reasons Americans don't get as much sleep as they should are varied and relate to environmental, physiological, and psychological factors. And I think we can learn more about the challenges and opportunities to help more of us get a good night's sleep. I'm convinced, though I've never seen proof, that if we could increase the hours Americans sleep, we could reduce violence in this country as well. Does sleep come easily for you? If not, what challenges do you face? I'd love to hear what you've tried in your efforts to get the rest you need, what's worked and what hasn't. And did anything you heard today get you thinking in new ways about how to help build a culture of health? Do you have a cutting-edge idea you'd like to discuss? Comment at rwjf.org slash podcast or tweet me at at Lori Melliker. That's at L-O-R-I-M-E-L-I-C-H-A-R. That's it for Episode 5 of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Pioneering Ideas Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. 
Once again, please join the discussion and access past episodes at rwjf.org slash podcast and follow us at twitter.com slash rwjf. Until next time, I'm Lori Melliker, signing off. Talk to you soon.